Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Perfect. Welcome back to the Wunder Mobility Podcast. Today we have a special guest from the public sector from the US, Trevor Paul. Welcome, Trevor. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Trevor is your chief mobility officer for the state of Michigan. That's a, a title that I'm well aware of, but in combination with a state that I haven't heard always and everywhere. Is that pretty unique to your state or... How did that come about? Yeah, so it's there are other chief mobility officers in the world, and we actually talk, which is pretty cool. You typically see chief mobility officers for cities, so the city of Detroit has that role as well as other cities. It's all it's name different, but LA, for instance, has has a head of mobility. You know, the truth is, it, it makes a lot of sense for a government, a government specifically a state, given that the state owns infrastructure assets and plays a huge role in economic development and growing strategic industries. And in Michigan, obviously automotive, the future of mobility is our main industry. So to have a role that, that will always be sort of a dedicated resource and focused on that space, I think is, is pretty critical. You, you're leading a, a team and an office that's called the Michigan Office of Future Mobility and Electrification. What are your... What's your long-term vision? What are your targets for this group? What are you trying to achieve in Michigan? Yeah, sure. So to be honest, I mean, the next 10 years are going to be a landmark decade for mobility. You know, you're seeing electric vehicles. They're expected to pass internal combustion engine vehicle sales by 2030. You know, software will represent more than 50% of the value of a vehicle by 2030. Level two autonomous vehicles are expected to make up almost 50% of new vehicle production. So in 2030, you'll probably still drive your car, but there's a good chance it'll park itself or navigate a construction zone by itself. So the thinking here is, is to have this office always sort of on, always available to focus on really two things, responsive policy and dynamic programming. Responsive policy in a sense that we're creating favorable regulatory environments for electric vehicles, for smart infrastructure, for autonomous vehicles, but then also dynamic programming to ensure that we're always having an eye on public-private partnerships and technology deployments that not only grow our industry, but help build a stronger transportation network and, and stronger state economy through safer, more equitable, and environmentally sound transportation for, for all Michigan residents. And really, that, that's the vision. And when you break down some of our objectives, I mean, it involves engaging more mobility startup, expanding our smart infrastructure, accelerating EV adoption, both with like fleet transition, but also growing our charging infrastructure, bolstering our, our workforce through reskilling and upskilling initiatives, and then bolstering also our, our manufacturing core. Michigan is positioned pretty uniquely against some of these other high growth markets like Silicon Valley and Israel in a sense that we have this manufacturing expertise. So some of these markets have great software companies, but sometimes it's hard to find rapid prototyping or low-run manufacturing. You know, Michigan has that in spades, and we can be a great partner. And even when you think of our end customer density in the Detroit area, 96 of the top 100 global tier one automotive suppliers are based here. So oftentimes, if you want to end up on a vehicle, you probably have to come through Detroit. So there are a lot of different things that I think make us a compelling partner. And the goal of this office is, is to be always open, as I mentioned earlier, always on to, to explore those partnerships. That was an impressive figure that you kind of slipped in there. You said 96 of the top 100 suppliers globally 
have a presence in Detroit and in your state. Yeah. So, yeah. And 17 automakers worldwide. So there's this level of knowledge spillover that you get. There's this level of innovation that you get, not just with production, but also R&D and design. And I guess everybody, even outside of the U.S., has this association of Detroit as the motor city and Michigan as the state of um, kind of also car production in the U.S. And when I think about what sentiment that brings up in Germany right now, there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with it. Also high dependency on some of the bigger OEMs and their supplier network. And this transition to EVs is not only seen as an opportunity, but also maybe a threat for some some of the employment and in total kind of new challenges came about last year and new car sales drops and so on. And are you, how, what's the sentiment like in Michigan at the moment around having this industry in the first place, but then also some dependency and then kind of a net negative versus net positive effect of being so exposed to mobility? Yeah, sure. I mean, just to sort of echo what, what you've mentioned already or alluded to, the last decade has seen really four disruptive technologies that we hear about all the time, autonomous, electric, shared, and connected. But that, see, that's the thing. Like A lot of times in Detroit or Michigan, you hear those words and then automatically the next word is vehicle. But the mm -hmm. truth is these are foundational technologies that cut across industries, air, land, space, and sea. And you know, this foundational technology is, I know at least in the automotive industry, shaking up the supply chain. So you mentioned like traditional automakers producing parts in-house again, like electric axles to claim greater share value. You see new OEMs, startups challenging these 120-year-old companies. You see tier one suppliers moving back in the supply chain to sell things like batteries and electronics. And tier two suppliers moving up to tier one to sell directly to automakers. And then you have companies that used to specialize in video game graphics. Now they're major automotive suppliers. So there are a lot of different changes and obviously it's shifting profit pools and creating new winners and losers. But, you know, the way that we're looking at it here is electrification is going to come before autonomy. So it's important that we get our supply chain lined up, electric vehicle components, batteries, and be as EV friendly as we can possibly be as a state. And then, you know, you look at multimodal and how cities are reshaping their transportation networks. It's important, I think, that we leverage our, our automotive advantage that we've had for a number of years here in Michigan and almost repurpose it or, or leverage it to focus on things like freight and rail and aerial and ground drones and things like that, that also rely, as I mentioned, on those disruptive technologies at the top. I think that's the way that you create a sustainable environment that grows your industry, but also, frankly, creates an amazing place to just move around. How do you see the evolution and the path forward for public transportation in, in your state and maybe to some extent in the U.S. overall. I think there's this perception from a European perspective that A, there wasn't so much in most places, but then also last year um, you could hear that both in Europe and in the U.S. a ridership dropped more and then maybe funding got cut back more. And so this whole question about is this kind of a death spiral or will more investment be made? What's your perspective on like the role of public transport in your state today and like going forward? Yeah, well, you're right. I, I think the pandemic exposed a lot as far as ridership. I think it was between March and May of 2020, the use of mass transit in countries like the US, Australia, Germany dropped by more than 70% year over year. 
And then you even had like employee health becoming a concern, things that didn't always come to mind when you thought about the next iteration of public transit or innovation around public transit. Who would have thought that would have been about virus mitigation technologies, right? So it leaves us in an interesting position. I've always believed that we're heading towards a subscription-based model. And I don't know when that's going to come, if it's going to be 50 years from now, 100 years from now, or 15 years from now. (laughs) But people are going to have options that go beyond just parking their car in front of their house and and getting in that car every day, driving downtown and and searching for another 10, 15 minutes for a parking spot. I I think it's going to be a lot easier to have access to micro mobility options, shared mobility options that work and that are efficient and that are a cost saving tool and also have a, a quality experience attached to them. Why do you think, why do you think this subscription aspect is important for me? It's kind of like a, way of packaging whatever services, kind of like a pricing mechanism, could be pay per use, could be, I don't know, buy it outright, or could be like a subscription and access. But why do you think that would be sort of a better state to have access to different services via some sort of subscription? Yeah, so I think, you know, cities are reshaping themselves. And that includes rethinking the road, rethinking curbs, rethinking sidewalks, returning some of the road to human beings, you know. And so I think with a subscription model, I mean, that not that the true, pure form of multimodal transportation? You know, one of the modes should be not just something that's a city bus or something that a city has to own the assets for. It should involve public-private partnership. You should have private options, you should have public options. As long as it gets you to where you need to be sooner and safer, or in the case of paratransit, you know, a lot of times, you know, People think of the future of mobility as safer, greener, more productive communities. But the truth is, mobility should also uphold a person's dignity. So I think with a subscription model, you just offer, there's there's more of a market, there's more choice, there's more opportunity for everybody. And if that's truly where we're going, then then let's get there. And I think the subscription model is the right vessel to do that. And if I get it right, this subscription that you envision would give you access to you said multimodal to all the yeah, different e-bikes, options in the market. Scooters, autonomous vehicles. If that's uh, the case, who would, be, who would be a provider of this subscription? Would that be an Uber or like a major private operator? Fascinating. And watch what happens. What are the industry dynamics the next decade? Who gets in the game that wasn't in the game before? Who has one mode unlock? Like Delta Airlines. What if Delta gets in the game and starts offering ground transportation? Obviously, you have Amazon, even, you know, retail, massive retail giants like Walmart. You could see a business model there. So I I think it's something that as as you see Ford, GM, Toyota, Volkswagen, think about their future models. They're not just competing with themselves. They're competing with all of these other converging industries that, again, go back to this idea of these foundational technologies crossing over and breaking down the silos that have traditionally been, been held. Do you think it's likely that in some cases cities will be the provider of these subscriptions and maybe even mandate that local operators participate? I don't know if mandates are the way to go over time. I think what you'll see is is potentially new revenue models. Yeah. And I think that's important because, you know, cities are losing revenue. So to the extent that they can they can find these new channels is important. But I also don't think it's a good idea to have a city add or double the assets they have on the books if it involves vehicle purchase, data, 
categorization and, and, and decision-making. And I mean, all of those things, I think, are, again, go back to public-private partnerships and allowing the city to be effective and own the things that make it function and work for its taxpayers and its residents and those that, that are visiting and whoever is using that city to live life. And then for the things that are inefficient but, but could be innovated upon, that's a private sector thing. And, and so that's where I think the, the future's headed. And, you know, we, we have a couple of examples of that here in Michigan. Of um, innovative um, public-private partnerships, you mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In, in Michigan, uh, one that we just announced that I'm really excited about is a new um, partnership between Cavenue, which is a, uh, a, a company started by Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, which is backed by Alphabet, Google's parent company, and, and the state of Michigan through our Department of Transportation to um, redevelop a 40-mile stretch between downtown Detroit and Ann Arbor, where the University of Michigan is. And essentially, it's going to be a dedicated autonomous vehicle, and it's going to be the road of the future that blends physical infrastructure, digital infrastructure, and creates a more controlled environment for some of these new emerging technologies to be used in the real world versus be locked away in testing sites. And so right now, we, you know, we announced it in August. Uh, we're in phase one, and we're looking at the route, roadway design, policy implications, revenue models. And, but that's a big example, even you know a smaller example to bring it back down to sort of intersection by intersection. We partner with Navia, which is a, a, a shuttle provider based in, in Europe, actually, to help deliver senior citizens to and from their doctor's appointments at Detroit hospitals. And, and we've also, during the pandemic, worked with other autonomous shuttle providers in West Michigan. Uh, actually, the longest public autonomous shuttle route in the country, in the U.S., is in Michigan in Grand Rapids, a city called Grand Rapids. And people were using it. And then the pandemic broke out. It's like, I don't want to get in a tight shuttle with, with a bunch of other people. So we introduced ultraviolet-like technologies through a public-private partnership to disinfect air and services, or surfaces. And ultimately, they were able to start that service again. And now, now there's ridership. So it's all about sort of allowing the public sector to pick up where the private sector leaves off and the private sector to pick up where the public sector leaves off. You've been in this field already for a longer time. Can you... Can you tell us a little bit about what roles you worked in before you did what you just described? Yeah, sure. So I, I've been with the state since 2013. And then before that, I was actually in advertising, doing very interesting things like design, promotional, like websites and, and games for like fast food breakfast and romance novels and fertilizer. But, you know, you learn to think strategically when you're doing something like that. But anyway, I joined the state back in 2013, and uh, my work centered around supply chain. So coming out of the recession, uh, as you might imagine, Detroit is a massive manufacturing community. And a lot of those small and mid-sized manufacturers, those machine shops, sparks flying, you know, music blaring, working overtime all night to get the work done, you know, they before the recession, they were at 80, 90 percent capacity, but they were losing customers, big customers they'd had for decades. And we're operating at like 40 to 50% capacity. So the goal was to take some of those companies who had originally really relied on the automotive industry and shift them and diversify them into healthcare, into aerospace, into food retail. So I started a program doing that. And then it ultimately uh, grew into the state program, started in Detroit, grew into a state program called Pure Michigan Business Connect. And then I uh, oversaw the international trade program. So focused on exporting from Michigan all over the world. And I've been working in mobility since 2017. Before this office, I led the state's initiative, Planet M, which focused on 
mobility company attraction, ecosystem development, similar things that the office is doing. Uh, the office just has a little bit of a broader scope that also focuses thing on like talent, charging infrastructure, things like that. If you think so, and now I'm here, I'm here with you today and I'm excited about it. All of think, that work has gotten me here with you today. If you think back about almost four years, 2017, when you first got into mobility and some expectations that we had around the time, some like hard to like rewind. I have to go back, like for example, where we were as a company then, like what we thought we were still in B2C, by the way, not a B2B product, like operating in Asia actually. And then, yeah. but for whatever you had at the time, what you were some big assumptions you made and what turned out very different from what you had thought at the time? Maybe is there something that was totally not on the radar then, but it's important now or the other way yeah. around? We were expecting this, but it really doesn't pick up. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'd be curious if it's okay to answer a question with a question. Sure. What were some of your assumptions back in like 2016, 2017? What, what, what was your world like back then? And, and talk to me a little bit more about how it changed. I'm, I'm just really curious. I mean, look, we've been for, the company is now about seven years old. So I, I used to work at Airbnb kind of towards the early days and then met Lyft founders over there and so on. And basically there was this whole ride sharing hype starting in the US and there were assumptions about this is just going to all go global very quickly now. We were launching the first ride-hailing operator in Germany, basically kind of like a lift in Germany, right? And mm -hmm. um, and running this in Hamburg and Berlin and so on. And then my what was for me like the most basic, let's say clear assumption that of course we would have ride-hailing ride at scale in Germany pretty quickly, seven years later still is not the case. Just doesn't exist. I mean, not doesn't exist at all, but not at any like notable scale, basically. Taxi is a luxury product. It's pretty expensive. Most people never use business travelers mainly, or maybe can they go to a doctor's appointment. Uh -huh. But then like private vehicle writing and so on really almost doesn't exist. And it's, and it's, and it's the role of the regulator. I don't necessarily mean that in a negative sense. In the beginning, yeah. it's like, oh my God, now they are, you know, putting roadblocks in our way, but after some years, you go deeper and deeper and like what's behind of those ideas of, you know, maybe kind of more consciously designing how mobility should look like in a city. And that brings its own new business opportunities, but it's not what you like thought the first time around. And I think this whole notion at the time of a, you know, right hailing is going to go global, which it hasn't. It has in some places, not in others. And then the, the second notion was an Uber is going to win it all, basically, you know, like record amounts of fundraising, very aggressive tactics. At some point, kind of this notion in the market, also in the investor market, that probably <laughs> you need to get out of the way. It's not, it's, it's not possible if you're not Uber. And today, while they are very big, obviously, they've retreated from whole geographies, gone out of, out of Asia, out of Russia, out of different places or are small in different places. But what we also didn't expect, and this is kind of where kind of your office, like, is actually like very active, probably knows much more. What we also didn't expect in the beginning and kind of factor in now is the role of government or let's say public entities, not just as a regulator, but also as a market participant and as an operator. Because basically like our, and I'm curious what you, maybe you think similarly about it or you'd be like, oh, this is, doesn't make sense. But we kind of begin to think, differently about the definition of public transportation, where originally for us, it was public transportation plus uh, car sharing, plus ride hailing and other new options. And now we more and more realize that 
some of the new mobility services that we help launch and many, many people bring out are, can be considered um, like a public transportation. If you have a bus going around every 30 minutes, like in a circle, it's, um, it's somewhat similar, like in its core functionality to having like a pooled ride sharing. So now you have dynamically routed shuttles, multiple people not going door to door, but like corner to corner and all that. And it's uh, getting ever closer and these things are meshing. And we see now in Europe especially, but sometimes there's the perception that such a thing would never exist in the US, but I think it does. And we see cities defining, for example, service levels they want to see. And they would say, there's going to be bike sharing in my city. There's going to be like some private operators, but I'm tendering this out for the next few years to also have like a city of X bike sharing that I want to see, for example, in all parts of the city, not just the lucrative neighborhoods. It's going to be station-based because that's whatever better for like my whole sidewalks and how, how everything flows. And then it's going to be across the whole city and some other constraints. And maybe I have some budget for it or not. I just have some exclusivity to give. And then here's a tender, private companies, please bid for it. So kind of cities, not just setting parameters, maybe an in-between of like formulating a tender or even outright being an operator of not just a bus that goes around once an hour, but something much more flexible uh-huh. and dynamic, uh, digitally booked. And that's something that we now realize more and more that transportation in many places is seen, at least in the city context, like a public good and something that voters probably to some extent determine also how a market will turn out, what services will be there and in what form. But what does that what does that trigger for you when you hear this kind of perception of a potential role of public players? Is that something you also observe to some extent or that you would definitely oh, never never see like that? I just I, I feel like I've been living in dog years well, since 2016, 2017, uh, not only with how public transit and views on public transit have evolved, but even, you know, within government, I think, you know, the idea of mobility was reserved for the Department of Transportation, right? Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, part of the reason we needed this office is because we have 17 different state departments that all are focused on mobility and electrification in some way. And over 135 different offices or councils or commissions within those 17 departments. And there's a lot of good work being done, like, Mm -hmm. you know, at the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, really innovative ideas around job creation Mm -hmm. within, within mobility, the Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, a great vision for the future of charging, not just growing infrastructure in rural areas, but also trying to create leapfrog moments around like wireless charging or other innovations. So you have all these different departments now that view mobility as core. That's probably the biggest change on the public sector side Mm -hmm. for me. And I also noticed that over the last couple of years, the state has really played more of a direct facilitating role to support cities, which in a lot of cases, when it comes to transportation and innovation, for sure, are understaffed or don't have the budget. And while a state can step in, I think a bit faster and potentially with a bit more resources, it can be a good good solution on the spot. A partnership can be a good solution on the spot. But also as a state, I view something that works in Ann Arbor or works in Detroit as something we could potentially roll out across the state. And I think a lot of 
different state leaders are looking at it that way. You know, another a couple of other trends I, I've noticed is I was kind of surprised to see how fast passenger autonomy moved early on, mm-hmm. 17, 18, and then in the 19. And then how much it shifted, it shifted dramatically in two ways later in 2019. And, uh, you know, some people will debate me on when the shift happened. It's just everything got very, very serious about electrification. Like, you know, bets were being made. Big companies were investing lots of money, creating in some cases thousands of jobs to focus on the future of electrification. Within months, you had GM, Ford, FCA make massive bets. And the other shift with autonomy was more towards the mobility of goods, last mile delivery, sort of the Amazon effect, middle mile, um, long haul, cross-border, like smart custom sports. Um, so that effort, it felt like that I thought was going to continue on for passenger autonomy now feels like it's it's completely pivoted towards a what some would say is a more predictable model where mm-hmm. you're delivering goods, clearer return on investment, clearer eye into the different variables of commercial corridors. You're not having to navigate some of the additional variables you might have a human being or was in a robo taxi versus a you know like a last mile drone. So I, that's that's been a surprise for me. And, and the last thing I'd add is just you know mobility as a service uh, like start was like on fire a few years ago, but kind of has slowed down a little bit. And that surprised me. I think it's beginning to change. I think there were just too many companies over the last couple of years for certain things that are now sort of, they've been weeded out and cities were just getting pelted with pitch, pitches and trying to be sold to versus, you know, ask like, what's their problem? What's their challenge? And now you're seeing sort of a change in the shift of how some of these tech companies are approaching cities how, how they're looking to, instead of replace public transit options, rather integrate into them. And that, that just leads to better outcomes. And I think that goes for, you know, mobility as a service. It goes for, you know, shared mobility. It goes for any sort of uh, solution that, that the industry could bring to a city. Yeah, totally. I think this, what you just mentioned about mobility as a service being Maybe a bit of a hype, but of course, a lot of transition is happening. But now, kind of a question mark triggered maybe also last year of, will it really become a norm? Or what's also maybe the convenience of ownership again, like used cars, yeah. prices actually going up. And so all, all of that, all of a sudden, it's more convenient. And I think that also has a lot to do with actually what's a user perspective and what's actually solving a real problem, like you mentioned, or at least making actually the, the life of a user easier. We're always looking, also trying to look like pretty broad at what people are doing in the industry and like talking to other startups and so on and looking at other products. And there was one this morning that I met with a um, team and we were like uh, looking at, they basically are providing like a, a way now to pre-book your parking space in private parking garages and then you can kind of check for special offers and then when you get there you can use the app and there's a video that proves it and the entrance opens it all that and it's like okay this is like all smart in a way you know if i would like go out and get the best deal and then it's kind of cool to open the garage door with my app but then again i I was like realizing in between, first of all, oh, it's really cool. And then I realized to myself, 
I would never ever like really use that because <laughs> I don't want yet another app for that. Or, like when I'm already at home, I have to think about this problem of you know, right. where exactly will I park, which garage will be full once I hit into the city, hit the city. It's just like not everything that can be digitized or would make sense is also like adopted if it doesn't like really solve a pain or makes our lives easier. You expect to just drive there. There's a sign. Well, this one's full. This one's free. You just go to the free. That's it. Not going to like have an extra app or like think in the morning about this problem beforehand. I think oh, yeah, uh, totally. there's a lot of like kind of maybe a uh, good in a, in a good sense also from this like, you know, economic downturn that was triggered by the pandemic. Maybe that we can even say that about ourselves company. We were really forced to also focus our activities. We were having like a handful of products that are not really making a lot of revenue yet, like as additional new products and whatnot, ideas that seem to make sense. But when you're like forced to go through the funnel of what was once a good idea, but what can we be, what can we really bet on with what we know today? And that's like serious enough, even in a risky situation to keep investing in, then everything gets shifted again. And so maybe like mobility was also ripe for a little bit of a recalibration of what the real problems are and what is really an improvement versus just like going down the rabbit hole of yet another idea. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think, you know, mobility as a service platforms are going to be reliant on how, for instance, the fintech in industry innovates on, on payments and how can we streamline payments and unify that data in a way that works and is safe. And you know what, once that happens, I think, integration between some of these platforms is going to seem a lot more seamless to the consumer. But right now, I mean, like it's, it just seems like, I mean, you look at all the different in the U S all the different parking apps you have to have on your phone, especially in Metro Detroit, where you have all these little main streets and all these little cities. I have like a whole little box of, of in my phone of just parking apps mm -hmm. that that's not efficient, you know? And I, I think too dynamic routing and, and like, And what's the dichotomy? And I'd be curious to get your take on this between, you know, as a city buses get better at dynamic routing, does it eat away market share potentially for other shared mobility options? Assuming that public transit gets a bit better, assuming that the pandemic causes, for instance, dividers to be in place where you can have more of an experience of feeling like, not that you're in your own vehicle, but you're in your own space versus maybe what it felt like before. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. I think that's what I like was alluding to before, that we traditionally thought about these different services like separate categories. And now more yeah. and more we, we realize they are like all on a spectrum. You know, so like in the first case, it's either a public bus that's a lot of other people and it's coming only every so and so often and it's not really going where you want to go, only like in the broad direction versus a taxi which is exclusive to you and you know very expensive compared to that, a huge gap and then now more and more in between maybe the dynamically routed shuttle service but that only go corner to corner and so on and we, we totally see it like in 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 hamburg public buses now there's a, like a smaller version of the public bus that goes like into neighborhoods and it's like more dynamic. And then they all have Wi-Fi, or maybe not all, but most have Wi-Fi by now. And, you know, it's the difference on the data becomes less and less. And there's opportunity potentially also for public transit operators 
to not just yeah, to maybe even go into yeah more lucrative segments of this mobility market. But do you do you like extend your range if you're a shared mobility company? I mean, like, there's only so far a city bus can take you, or a scooter can take you, or uh, some of these other options. I mean, does it does it become more of a middle mile passenger service? Public transportation does. Uh, no, th- just like shared mobility in general, like some of these private companies that are coming in, car sharing, ride sharing. I mean, uh, one gr- cool example, I think, pretty much at the forefront of some of the shared mobility options now would be a sixth, I guess, globally as a rental car company. But in Germany, they've launched, you know, other shared mobility options, car sharing, ride hailing and so on. And in that car sharing example, it used to be that if you want free floating car sharing, there's a limited business area in the city where you can leave the car. And if you if you end your trip outside and uh, of this area and only come back in the evening, it's going to be prohibitively expensive. Or if you want to go to a different city, that's even worse. Now you're stuck with the car until you go back to the original place. But what they've done, for example, and others are going to follow, I guess, is they have like a seamless handover into effectively other products. So if you end up keeping the car for a day, you just switch to what would be the attractive daily rental. If you go to another city, you can even leave the car there. You can drop it at any other city in the country you could just pick it up from free floating, leave it at any other like sixth rental station, for example, in the country, even in maybe a smaller village or on an island. And so you basically, you have a total and, 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 and now they have a subscription service and so on. So you can really move towards a model of like mobility as a service. That's like a Netflix like experience. Like you can fridge with pretty low barrier to entry, like pick it up anytime. You see this on the street. When I, I live, in the city, in front of my house, typically there would be, like in walking distance, pretty close, several different cars of theirs or of other competitors. So pick one, and maybe it's just for a few minutes, but maybe keep that same car for some days, or maybe in the future even like months in the end of the day, and it wouldn't be a different rate, monthly rate, than if I had gone to a dealership and uh, like sign a leasing contract or get into a subscription so I think that the flexibility of shared mobility like really expands and the barriers to entry get much lower. But yeah, the differences to public transport options are also meshing as public transport becomes more personal and more flexible. And so in the yeah, in the same city at the same time in many other German cities, for example, often the like leading bike sharing scheme is actually provided by the city, but then run by private operators. And so as you go through like this, whatever jungle of new mobility options over the course of a week, you're like touching on some private and some public options. And you wouldn't maybe necessarily even know the difference. You would like question people on the street who you think owns this. I I think often they might not know any other day if it's the public transport operator behind it or a private company behind it. The future, man. The future is here. <laughs> in some places it is. In some places it is. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a super ex- exciting space. And I think that what you mentioned along the way about having this kind of manufacturing strength and legacy as an automotive place, but then attracting yeah, also a newer players, betting on certain transitions and trying to like streamline all of these initiatives from 
however many different local offices and like private initiatives and public initiatives by being like a point of contact. That's that's really cool. I think that could probably be a role model for, for other areas, for other um, geographies. Thank you. What do you see? I will take that. That's the nicest thing anyone said to me today. I have some experience like interacting with a lot of different offices in other unnamed geographies and it's often not very streamlined. Yeah, what, at the end of the day, it's all about customer service. What do, you see, what, what do you see, like you, you mentioned and, and you described in the beginning kind of your office, your position, and then you said there are others and we also talk. What are some other geographies either in the Americas or in Europe that kind of stood out to you like recently that are very far ahead and very fast moving? I've really been impressed. I guess I can go by category. I really like, I mentioned them earlier, but the city of Los Angeles, Urban Movement Lab, like some of the things they're doing to engage startups, mobility startups, and new technologies that way is pretty cool. The ability to help a company grow at scale by opening up your, your infrastructure and creating rights of way in a way that improves people's lives is innovative. Mm-hmm. Given all of the stuff, all of the things that the New York, New Jersey Port Authority which isn't, doesn't just do, you know, ships. They, they, it's a multimodal system. The fact that, you know, I've had multiple conversations with them on not only our self-driving vehicle corridor, but, but other services for workers, things like e-pallets or other sort of AV-related activities. The fact that they're thinking that way, to me, is really, really progressive. Mm-hmm. I'm, this isn't necessarily related to industry engagement or deployments, but just the idea that, you know, the pandemic has caused, I mentioned this earlier, these cities to rethink their their landscapes, their streets. I mean, some cities are backing that up. Like, you look at what mm-hmm. Oakland, California has done, or Bogota and Colombia, or cities in, in, in Scotland related to just shutting down their, their streets. I mean, I think Oakland... Uh, shut down is it like 75 miles or 10% of its streets or uh, to, to just do cycling, walking routes. Paris is adding like 650 kilometers in bike lanes. And even just the announcement, I think it was last week of, of this massive garden that, mm-hmm. that is going to be constructed to the streets of Paris. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, urban planning, it, this is a crisis, don't get me wrong, but I think it's going to really, one of the silver linings of this sort of terrible moment in time is going to be how cities reevaluate themselves and act like quick, like things that would have taken two years mm. are now taking six months because mm-hmm. bureaucracies break down in situations like this and you're able to get stuff done. So th- those are some of the places that I'm, I'm looking at. I, even in the Midwest, the American Midwest, Ontario and Canada, I mean, there's, there's some good stuff happening that isn't necessarily just on the coasts. And I'll tell you, I've never talked to in since six to 2016, 2017, I've never talked to more states. More, I, I call with Ohio, Iowa reached out in talks with Arizona, Minnesota. Everyone wants to collaborate where I think before it was all about competition, first mm-hmm. around policy and then sort of industry. Don't get me mm-hmm. wrong, like states still compete, but it just feels much more collaborative nowadays. Seems like a very healthy competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Super cool. There were also some cool examples. And also like the silver lining in the in the difficulty right now and seizing the moment. 
And it, it, one other what? thing I'd add too that I, I just again with the pandemic, like the, in the onset of contactless delivery, what Neuro has been able to do, I'm sure there's companies in, in Europe that have small fleets of like road legal delivery robots can handling medical supplies or food. But cities, at least in the U.S., have done an insanely good job of loosening permitting rules. Cities like Detroit have loosened permitting of like curbside pickup to help small businesses. And this has sort of changed the game for these delivery services, whether it's like DoorDash, or Starship, or, or others, to grow and, and to be an asset in their community, maybe more than they were before. So that's another, another thing I wanted to bring up. That's really cool. Look, that's super amazing to hear. It makes me want to come visit Michigan. <laughs> and hey, come on. When we're, when we're ready. This. I want to go to Hamburg. It sounds great. What it's is the, you said Germany, Seattle? Is that uh, what it is? It's the Seattle of Germany. It's it yeah, runs a lot and yeah. has a port. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, come join us for the for the summit. I'll share details. Wonder Mobility Summit in the fall, in, in October. The half That'd our, be great. our gathering. It was super nice to talk to you today, Trevor. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, no, this has been really good and I wish you guys the best. Thank you.